The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 9th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. A new Star Wars prequel is the big news in my house. A Han Solo prequel, but it should not be. It should be Greece. Can't get the kids interested. I try to sell the kids on the fact that Greece might have a new currency, and what if they call it the yogurt? Yogurt, it helps make the pill of devaluation that much easier to swallow. Yogurt, in your gut, you know it's right. But don't let me tell you about what I know about the fate of Greece. No. Listen to Ian Bremer, president of the Eurasia Group. Now, Ian will be on the gist for a full segment talking about the three choices the U.S. faces as a superpower. But right now, I want to ask about Greece. This is an opinion worth, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. People pay him that much for his advice. So give me a best case, a worst case, and a likely case about what happens with Greece. Well... Look, the, the most important thing that's happened over the last few days is that uh, the Greek government now has real coherence and strength to it. Syriza had won with only 36% of the popular vote, and it was a very divided party. Now, 61% of the population comes out in support of uh, a no, and 60% actually voted. Huge deal. And that means that Syriza, number one, they can get rid of some of their members of the left. They got rid of the finance minister, our friend, the motorcycle riding Varoufakis. And they also reached out to the opposition and they're presenting a unified plan to the Europeans. So the ability of the Greeks to sell whatever deal they eventually accept, to sell it domestically and to get it through parliament is there. That's one big piece. But there's a second piece. The Europeans have to agree. And right now, the Europeans are divided. I see the French saying that they'd maybe like a compromise. I see the Lithuanians saying, let's get a deal done. I see the Germans saying conditions aren't ready. They're pushing a lot harder. Spaniards in between. It's Europe. It's going to be hard. So, and everyone uh, acting according to type. <laughs> exactly. Pretty much, yeah. right? So I, I think, look, the best case scenario is after a period of time, where the ECB sees that there, the European Central Bank sees that there's progress, but they're not there yet. They continue to do the minimum possible to allow the Greek banks to stay afloat and a deal is cut. It's probably a short-term deal of a loan, but we actually have a more constructive process between Greece and the Eurogroup. That's the best scenario. The worst scenario is that uh, Greece gets bankrupted in short order. The Germans force basically a move to an alternative currency. The Greek government implodes. You have a, a, a Grexit, and the Greek economy with the Grexit, with the drachma, goes down another 20% after the 25% they've already taken just in the next few months, and unemployment spikes because they can't handle a drachma. Mm-hmm. They don't have an export-driven productive economy. It doesn't work for them, which is why they, they want to stay with the euro. So uh, that's the worst scenario. The most likely scenario is that you have negotiations. They're not great. You have more runs on the Greek banks. They have tougher and tougher capital controls. They're not able to fully reopen that they have to go to temporary currency, IOUs of some sort, which many say will be the first or second step towards a Grexit. But the Greeks don't want Grexit. They have a strong government now, and they're able to basically, you know, sort of put all mechanisms in place, including legal suits against the Europeans to stop them from actually leaving. And then we have more and more difficult negotiations between the Europeans and the Greeks. And so you have this continued crisis 
but it doesn't lead to economic crisis across Greece's borders because they've been able to basically wall that off with the ECB continuing to pump in money and a stronger banking system. The economies are also doing better in Spain, for example, in Italy than they were during the Eurozone crisis. That's where I think we're most likely to head. Ian Bremer is president and founder of the Eurasia Group. I want to thank you, but now we usher in the Ian Brexit. Thanks. My pleasure. On the show today, it's the spirit of 75. Who doesn't love a 40th anniversary? It's all about the top songs of 1975, followed by a spiel from 1975. So from time to time on this show, we talk about the number one songs of a certain year. And here are the decades we've touched upon, the 60s, the 80s, the 90s. Well, let's fill in the gap. And let's fill in the gap with 1975, which was, to my ears, a very disturbing year in music, <laughs> at least going by the number one songs. Joining us now is uh, Chris Malamphy, who writes the Why Is This Song Number One column for Slate and is our guide through the years 1975. In my imagination, it's about fun and disco. I look at the charts. It's uh, the self-styled genre, easy listening. It ain't easy for me. How'd we get here in 1975, Chris? As I've said before in this series, I, I like cusp years. I like years where we're between two things. And 75 is not only quite literally in the middle of the 70s, it's also sort of poised between the easy listening half of the decade and the disco half of the decade. What you are seeing, and you almost can watch it happening during the year 1975 itself, is the beginning of the year is is very easy, easy listening, very schlocky. Yeah. I mean, almost at the beginning of the year, you've got back-to-back -back Barry Manilow with Mandy, a song that's probably playing in a checkout line right now as we speak. And By checkout line, you mean like an assisted suicide facility? Sure. Yeah. I mean, any sort of checkout line. Happy people pass my way Looking in their eyes I see a memory Immediately following that, uh, the Carpenters with their cover of Please, Mr. Postman. You know, I actually am a Carpenters fan, but I would never introduce anybody to their cover of Please, Mr. Postman if I'm yeah. going to sell them on the beauty of Karen Carpenter's voice. Speaking of unnecessary cover versions, the year starts with Elton John doing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Uh, this is one of two number one hits in 1975 with an assist, an audible assist from John Lennon himself. John Lennon and Elton John were very good friends. They had worked together on a record for John the prior year, 1974, that went to number one called Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Elton made a deal with John that if that record had gone to number one, he had to appear live with Elton in concert. The record did go to number one. It was John Lennon's first number one hit in America. As if for paying the favor, John Lennon basically put his good Beatle housekeeping seal of approval on this cover of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. He sings on it. He plays guitar on it uh, under a pseudonym, Dr. Winston O'Boogie. <laughs> and then in the uh, ill-advised reggae break in the middle of the record, uh, you can audibly hear John Lennon singing along with Elton John.
Elton John owned 1975. And what's interesting about Elton John in 1975 is that this is both the apex and the beginning of the end of his imperial period. Elton John holds the distinction as the first artist to debut at number one on the Billboard album chart, and he did it twice in 1975. And then he falls into a massive career trough that took him the better part of half a decade to recover from. Uh, he comes out as bisexual in a cover interview with Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, his album sales but fall off. But that's because Island Girl, the lyrics are about, you know, she's a big girl, she's standing six foot three, turning tricks for the dude in the big city. The, the evidence was there. Oh, my goodness. There were so many hints. Elton coming out as bisexual in 1976 was uh, was a big big deal at the time. Yeah. It kind of uh, sent him uh, into the wilderness, among other things. Of course, you know he was deeply addicted to drugs at the time, and and uh, you know facing lots of personal demons. But Elton had a tough second half of the 70s. He had an unprecedented first half of the 70s. Uh, there there are very few chart runs like the one Elton John had from about 1972 to 1976. Neil Sedaka, we should really talk about Neil Sedaka because he's the quiet MVP of 1975. Uh, yeah. He has two number one hits under his own name, and he has a third one that is actually the biggest record of the year. Uh, the Captain and Neil's number one record, Love Will Keep Us Together, was a song written by Neil Sedaka. Of course, he has two number one hits uh, himself. One is Laughter in the Rain, very smooth, some would say schlocky, I think actually quite pleasant uh, number one hit. Okay, so then there are a couple of songs that went to number one that are good, fine songs. I just never have to hear them again. Pick up the pieces by the average white band, and especially Black Water by the Doobie Brothers. What cracks me up about the Doobie Brothers is that they are basically the split personality band, and both personalities had a number one hit. This is the first one, and the second one comes about five years later. The first one was as kind of a southern boogie rock band. Mm -hmm. It's got that kind of, you know, swampy groove. It's it's a little spooky. Uh, it's very straight-up rock. Four years later, flash forward, and we've got another number one hit fronted by Michael McDonald, who took over vocals for the band and basically became sort of uh, the, the leading light of the Doobie Brothers. Brothers, and he has a number one hit in uh, 1979 called What a Fool Believes, which is the polar opposite of this record. So when Rerun famously asked, which doobie you be? It was a pretty potent question, actually. Yes. Hello there. <laughs> I be Roger Thomas, which doobie you be? A song that was covered famously by three divas done by a group calling themselves LaBelle. Yeah, Lady Marmalade by LaBelle, uh, fronted by, of course, Patti LaBelle. Right.
a kind of fantastic record. It, it, it's got, oh, you yeah. know, uh, New Orleans groove. It's got kind of a Southern vibe. It's got elements of disco, yet it's not really disco. It, it's even kind of got rock bones to it. So I, I really love uh, the original LaBelle version of Lady Marmalade. It, it's got a little of everything, pretty much everything you would hear on the radio in 1975 packed into one single. Here's a song I totally didn't know existed. Hey, won't you play another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song? I told, I, this has been wiped from my memory. Apparently it was number one song in 1975. Should, should we play it for you, Mike, and sure. jog your memory? Yeah. Hey, won't you play another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song? If I can say anything about this B.J. Thomas hit, it's like several of the hits of 1975 in the sense that it's got some country elements to it. You've also got Glenn Campbell going to number one during this year with mm-hmm. Rhinestone Cowboy. That was a huge song. Huge song. Like a rhinestone cowboy Riding out on a horse in a star-spangled rodeo Like a rhinestone cowboy Now, the Bee Gees went to number one with Jive Talkin', which is, you know, there are two Bee Gees eras. They were a British invasion band, and then they became disco. This is pre-Saturday Night Fever, so is this... A, their first foray into disco, and B, did this get them the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, essentially? Yes and yes. I mean, it's rather impossible to overstate the importance of Jive Talkin' as a record in Bee Gees career. Mm. Basically, they had spent uh, the early 70s kind of in the wilderness. They had a couple of big hits at the dawn of the 70s, both of them ballads, one called Lonely Nights, uh, the other called uh, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. Both terrific songs. Unfortunately, that kind of put them in a ballad slot where that's all the record label wanted. And for the next few years, they recorded several dreary albums that did nothing on the charts. And then in 1975, they teamed up with a producer named Arif Mar He's a Turkish-American producer, kind of a legend. And uh, Arif Mardin brought them to Miami. He brought them to Criterion Studios. And uh, the story goes, this is actually a great backstory, that uh, every day when they were driving back and forth to the studio, they would drive over a bridge in Miami called the Sunny Isles Bridge. And as they drove over the bridge, their uh, tires would make kind of a beat over the the slats in the bridge. Uh, And at one point, one of the brothers, Gibbs, said, wow, that's our drive talking. And uh, Jive Talking basically evolved into Jive Talking. You can even hear it at the beginning of Jive Talking. Jive Talking has this terrific beat that opens up the record that sounds like a car. It sounds like a car driving down the road, this skittering little chop, 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 little beat that is absolutely meant to imitate the sound of a car. And then in come the keyboards, in comes that bassy groove, and uh, you've got Barry Gibbs finding his falsetto. What's interesting about 1975 in Billboard Hot 100 history is it holds the record for most number one hits in a single year. Many of these songs spent a single week at number one. The the number one spot turned over uh, an absurd amount. Uh, There are 35 number one songs in 1975. 1974 was also a busy year, 35 number one hits that year. So those two years hold the record for most number one hits. Only five artists repeat at number one in 1975. Elton John, Neil Sedaka, The Eagles, John Denver, and Casey and the Sunshine Band. 
And arguably of those five acts, the one that is signaling what is to come in the second half of the 70s is Casey and the Sunshine Band. They show up at the very end of the year with two number one hits back to back, Get Down Tonight, and That's the Way I Like It. I would argue those are two of the most influential records of 1975 in the sense that they are mapping out what the second half of the decade is going to sound like. about 1975, the the year we're talking about this year, is that the vast majority of these records were number one for only one week. The year we're in right now, 2015, there have only been four number one hits uh, so far this year. And as I'm recording this, it's almost the end of June. Yeah. uh, And uh, only four songs total have gone to number one. Because when Uptown Funk takes 14 weeks. Exactly. We we had a, a number one record that sat stone at number one for the better part of four months. So that slowed things down. But even uh, the current number one hit, uh, See You Again by uh, Wiz Khalifa and Charlie Puth, that's been number one for something like seven or eight weeks now. So, and that's not a miscount, you don't think? That's accurately portraying what Billboard wants to portray, a combination of airplay and record sales? Yeah, I mean, what it's portraying, frankly, is that as we've poured more data into this chart, we realize that hits are like snowballs rolling downhill. Uh, Whatever starts at first, usually uh, it'll be started by, uh, you know, people buying the song on iTunes or people streaming the song on Spotify. And then once that catches on and people are just watching the YouTube video like crazy, and then radio is always late to the party, but once radio plays a song, if they've found, if they've tested it with the public and found it's a hit, they'll just keep playing it and playing it and playing it. Chris Malamphy is the chronicler of number one hits. Today we're talking 1975. Drop us a line with your suggestions, email or Facebook. What year should we talk about? A year from your youth? A year that always flummoxed you, like at least the early part of 1975. But Chris, thanks a lot. You got it, Mike. Outward is Slate's LGBTQ section. You might know it because we have talked with their staff on the gist before. Well, you can come see the writers and editors of Outward Live on stage at City Winery in New York this Monday, July 13th. Special guest Evan Wolfson. He's the attorney who really got the ball rolling on the marriage equality movement. And Ted Allen from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. He'll be there. He's talking about stereotypes in media. For tickets, go to slate.com slash NYC Outward. And guess what? If you want a sneak peek, of What's in Store Monday, you can check out J. Brian Lauder, June Thomas, and Mark Joseph Stern in a special pilot episode of an Outward podcast. It's called Outward Kiki. You can find it in Slate's daily podcast feed, and we'll also include a link in our show notes. And now the spiel. You know what? Spiel, it's it's still too ethnic. I mean, it's 1975. Maybe by 1976 we'll be ready for spiel, but not now. Still, once more, your radio ramble. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, Pesca really is too ethnic. And now your radio ramble. I'm Mike Michaels. Ah, that sounds right. Dynamite. Have you seen? Are you watching this one? Good times. That TV wonderkind Norman Lear, he's 
done it again. And mark my words, in a couple years, we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of baby Thelmas and Floridas running around. That's how TV works. So that's what I was thinking. And then the show was over, so I got up off my couch and turned off my Zenith by hand. Weirdly, why would I go into such detail about the only known way to turn off a television? Hmm. Anyway, I got to thinking. And I like to, when I think, I like to mix one of the latest drinks like a zombie or ooh, a Harvey Wallbanger Galliano goodness and mix it with my Playboy swizzle stick. Oh yeah, that, you know, that Playboy swizzle stick. I mean, you got to have a swizzle stick, right? Everyone has swizzle sticks, so you can't live without swizzle sticks. But I do want to say I balance my Playboy magazine subscription by also subscribing to Ms. Magazine. Although, did you read this article in the Times? Apparently, this other feminist organization, the Red Stockings, they're the ones who protest the uh, Miss America. They do not like Ms. Magazine. Here, let me read the Times article. They put out a press release devoted to presenting evidence purporting to indicate Miss Steinem was involved in a CIA plot to subvert the radical wing of the movement with the reformist politics of Ms. Magazine. That from dissension among feminists, the rift widens. So who knows? Who knows what to think? You know, I guess just once they pass the ERA, women's lib is going to sort itself out. But you know what else? Hold on. Let me take a drag of my Paul Mall. You know what? That reminds me in this, my radio ramble. You know a lawyer is going to bring a class action lawsuit against the Superdome to ban smoking inside the Superdome? I mean, that is crazy. First of all, you'd get a clear look at the Saints. I mean, a thick layer of smoke is harder to penetrate than their defense. Do you know what I'm saying? But I, but I think if you know this, if you, if you uh, read and subscribe to Sport Magazine, you know this, that the Saints, they had two top 12 draft picks this year. And I think that football fans won't soon be forgetting the names Larry Burton and Kurt Schumacher. Now, of course, I don't want to delve too much into sports. First of all, all the research and the ratings shows the NFL is pretty niche. Not a, not a lot of you guys like that. Second of all, as you know, I have another radio show, Unsubscribe and Cancel, that I co-host with a 10-year-old kid and a kid who won't be born for almost a decade. It's a weird format, I admit it. Lots of painful silences waiting for the Levin kids' parents to even meet. Anyway, where was I on this, my radio ramble? Oh, yeah, not only is the lawyer bringing a lawsuit, the governor of Oregon has put up a sign in his office that says, thank you for not smoking. I mean, who goes to a governor's office and doesn't smoke? I don't know. Maybe this guy's secretary has great gams and you don't want to obscure the view as she's taking dictation or making photostats. Oh man, I guess the Ms. Magazine just ain't taken, is it? So, Jerry Ford, on to Jerry Ford. The president will be running. The president announced this. I think it was sort of grandstanding. He announced this in front of a room full of newspaper reporters. And then in less than a day, they're putting this on the front page. I mean, it's kind of shameless, right? But I mean, and also it's 15 months before the election. Who is even thinking about the election? I have been reading this uh, one series in time following, following this guy, you know, Jimmy Carter, the peanut farming former governor of Georgia. This guy's trying to raise $2,000 a day. Good luck with that. They say that Senator Lloyd Benson and Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, those guys each have, you ready for this? A million dollars. They have a million dollars in their campaign chest. I mean, for that kind of money, you could run like two or three presidential campaigns and have money left over for a calculator. 
Or for an ad in the Super Bowl. Hey, make it a cigarette ad and the people in the Superdome might be reminded there's a thing called smoking. Yeah, like anyone needs a TV reminder about that. Let me tell you. Let me tell you this. I'm serious here. If we do away with smoking, you know who wins? Communists. You ever see the boys in the war room during the Cuban Missile Crisis? What were they doing? They were smoking. Ever see the GIs over in West Berlin? What are they doing all the time? They're smoking. Smoking fights communism. Mark my word, the two go hand in hand. The day we no longer have to worry about communism, that's the day we could put our cigarettes down, and not one day before. And I don't care if the CIA, Gloria Steinem, the captain, or Tennille knows it. Now, excuse me, I gotta go eat some red M&Ms before the FDA takes them off the market. I wish someone were alive to tell me if that were bullshit. But of course, I can say bullshit in this The Radio Ramble. Also, I'm out of Harvey Warbanger. Goodbye for now, and... Dynamite! That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. She's about negative 10. And according to the name, she's a girl. Or she's going to be a girl, so I don't see how she can produce The Gist. Joel Meyer, managing producer. Now, there's a guy who's almost born. I like the cut of his 2B jib, Andy Bowers. Now we're talking. The executive producer of The Gist is in elementary school. He has a metal lunchbox. He has a bowl haircut, and I'm sure he's threatening his mom by saying, I wish I could cut it all off. Who needs hair anyway? The gist brought to you by the fact that in 1975, the gist could speak in complete short sentences, could sort objects by shape and color, could recognize and identify common objects and pictures, and has mastered most aspects of body training. Most. I gotta go. Thanks for listening.